Certain information set forth in the podcast may contain forward-looking statements under applicable security laws. These statements are not guarantees of future performance, and undue reliance should not be placed on them. Although forward-looking statements contained in this presentation are based upon what management of the company believes to be reasonable assumptions, there can be no assurance that forward-looking statements will prove to be accurate. LifeSci Advisors and the company undertake no obligation to update forward-looking statements in the podcast should circumstances or management's estimates or opinions change. This podcast is for general information purposes only. It is not an offer or solicitation to buy securities and does not constitute investment advice. It's a prophylactic vaccine, so we want to eliminate the onset of cancer in patients. We're not trying to, unlike other cancer vaccines, which are focused on treating a cancer once it's gained critical mass, we're trying to destroy the cells, the cancer cells as they arise. Hello, my name is Neil Canavan, and this is Bench Talk Bios, a podcast series by LifeSite Partners, where we introduce healthcare investors to the people and the pipelines driving the biotech sector forward. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Amit Kumar. He is the chairman, president, and CEO of Anixa Biosciences. Doctor, welcome to the podcast today. Thank you, Neil, for having me. So first things first, for the benefit of those who may not be familiar with Anixa, let's start with the elevator pitch. 60 seconds or less, tell me where is Anixa headquartered, how long have you been in business, and give me an idea of what you do there. Well, Anixa is a uh, biotech company located in the Silicon Valley. We're developing a portfolio of products in oncology and infectious diseases. The company was actually founded many years ago in the 1980s, but it was an electronics company and it had gone through a number of iterations and was on the verge of failure and bankruptcy. I got involved four years ago and took over as CEO and repositioned the company as a biotech company. So in reality, even though the company is, you know, decades old, from a practical standpoint, it's only about four years old. Okay. So for a far more detailed download of an exit story, we're going to wait for a few minutes. But first, in keeping with the mission of Benchtop Bio, which is to introduce listeners to senior management, let's first talk for a bit about you. Let's start with your training. You started out at a liberal arts college, Occidental, right in the heart of Los Angeles. This is class of 86. And you got a BS in chemistry. So just tell me a bit about that young man. Oh, why chemistry? Well, I initially decided to go to Occidental College. There was a joint program between Occidental and Caltech where you would do three years at Oxy and two years at Caltech and get uh, two degrees, one in engineering and one in liberal arts. But as I continued my education, I decided rather than become an engineer, I wanted to perform research. So I completed my degree at Occidental College and then went off to graduate school at Stanford. Let's talk about that graduate school. This was not just any program. This was in PCHEM, physical chemistry. This is a very math heavy discipline. Now I studied peak. Oh, and you got your PhD in Caltech in Stanford. It's a joint program. And that was in 1991. I studied PCHEM in graduate school. I could appreciate what you could do with it. But once I hit the waves of the Fourier transforms, I drowned. But clearly it appealed to you. So what plans did you have after getting a PhD in this advanced mathematic chemistry discipline? 
Well, my plan was originally to become a professor, go into academia eventually. And so the research, obviously, teach and do research is the goal there. I see. You then did a postdoc at a small community college in Boston, that being Harvard, where you worked on biochips. Meaning what? Like gene arrays or what? Well, at Harvard, I worked on a number of things, including surface chemistry and methods to make chips. I invented a technology there that is now known as soft lithography. And soft lithography has turned out to be something very valuable for academic research. I think I would say that every university in the country, every research university in the country has someone who's doing soft lithography today. Now, this sounds like something that could be patented, maybe? Did you get a patent around then? Yes, we patented you know, several patents, and Harvard has licensed those patents out to a number of organizations, and royalties are being received both by Harvard and by me. Oh, lovely. So uh, how many patents do you have to your name? All of the patents that have been granted as well as pending, it's close to about 30. Now, I have to ask in your training, did you always have your eye just on the science? You mentioned, well, maybe I'll go into a professorship. or When did you start thinking about business translation? I think I've always had the concept of business and science. They do go together. Even in academia, you have to be aware of the business implications of the science that one is doing. So it's always been there. So let's start with your corporate climb. Tell me what happened right after Harvard. I went to a startup company in the Bay Area, a biotech company that was working in the area of diagnostics, venture capital funded. I was a staff scientist there, and I was fortunate enough to get promoted very quickly and eventually became a group leader that developed the technology that ultimately enabled that company to be acquired. So this would be your first leadership position outside of a lab, obviously. That's correct. Okay. IDETEC was actually bought out by IDEX Labs. You stayed on for that. And then in 94, you go on to your next adventure, which is an entrepreneur in residence at something called Oak Management, which is a VC firm. Now, you're a physical chemist by training. What made you think you'd make a good VC? Well, you know, I was a scientist and I had an understanding of business and we were working in the biotech arena and Oak Investment Partners had a practice in both life sciences as well as technology. And so I joined as an EIR, Entrepreneur in Residence, to work with some of the partners on the biotechnology side at Oak. Okay. You stay with that for roughly three years. And in 1997, you dive into the biotech healthcare ocean, which is not surprisingly off the coast of California, and you establish the oncology-focused signature bio. Unfortunately, the stream of yours was not to be a success. There were some issues with funding, which had nothing to do with you. And the company folded in the early 2000s. And after Signature, you decided to go back to the financial arena in a company called Acacia. This is also, I think, a VC company. You are a VP there. And you can currently sign on to be president and CEO of Comba Matrix. This is a diagnostics company. And the most relevant fact about this is you took them public. Now, I was wondering if you could give me some quick advice. Let's say I'm a brand new CEO. I've never been in an IPO. What would be something you'd tell me right off the bat? Maybe a warning, like, you know, be flexible, be patient, be confident what you will not accept. I don't know. You tell me. I think taking a company public is a unique experience. It takes some effort. 
You really need a good support staff, which includes your financial people, good bankers, and you really need to know and be able to articulate your story in a manner that enables investors, potential investors, to understand the value proposition that you're providing. So I think the characteristics that make you a good CEO in any situation are the characteristics that are necessary for an IPO. Is this a situation where you really don't want to delegate to someone else that this is a micromanaged situation? Well, it depends. Uh, depends on what the activity is. I think if you are taking a company public, investors really want to know about the leader. And so it's really not something that you want to delegate. You really want to come across as being in control of your company. Uh, after Combimetrics, I uh, came a five-year CEO stint at Geo Fossil Fuels, which seems kind of random in that because that's an energy company. But then in 2016, you joined the board of the American Cancer Society. And in 2017, you came to Anixa. So from energy to oncology to Anixa, this pretty quick transition. Why did you take this on? Well, stepping back for a second, during my PhD, even though it was in physical chemistry, the research I did was uh, energy-related research, not biotech research. And so I have a lot of expertise in energy. In fact, some of my other companies are in the battery and solar energy space. And I joined Geofossil Fuels because that was an interesting technology that we were looking at where we were genetically engineering microbes to go into oil wells and break up the oil, the very thick, viscous oil, so that we could extract more oil out of oil wells. And we worked on that for a while. We made some good progress, but then the price of oil dropped dramatically, and I chose to move on back into biotech, and that's when I joined Anixa. All right, so let's talk about Anixa. There are four programs I would like to discuss with you today. Three are in oncology one in breast cancer to an ovarian cancer. And the fourth program is a small molecule approach to COVID, starting with breast cancer, specifically a prophylactic vaccination technology in the setting of triple negative breast cancer. And for those who don't know, this disease is notoriously hard to treat. This is being developed in collaboration with Cleveland Clinic. So first, tell me about the technology. How are you delivering it? And what is the antigen? Yeah, the breast cancer vaccine is probably one of the more exciting projects I've ever been involved in, not only because it's scientifically elegant, but also because it has the potential to change the way we deal with cancer, specifically this type of cancer. Basically, it's a prophylactic vaccine, so we want to eliminate the onset of cancer in patients. We're not trying to, unlike other cancer vaccines, which are focused on treating a cancer once it's gained critical mass. We're trying to destroy the cells, the cancer cells as they arise. And the way it works is that there is a protein called alpha-lactalbumin that is expressed in the breast of women who are lactating. When the woman stops lactating, that protein disappears. But it was discovered by the Cleveland Clinic researchers that years later, when cancer cells, when breast cells become cancerous, they start making that protein again. So hypothesis was, if we could immunize women past the age of childbirth and teach the immune system to destroy 
the cells making alpha-lact albumin, then we'd be able to destroy the cancer cells as they arise before the cancer cells reproduce and gain critical mass. How has it been delivered? So it's a simple injection, sub Q injection with the alpha-lact albumin and an adjuvant that we designed. So very straightforward. So, well, let's go into the testing. You have a trial underway. Uh, If you could give me the idea of the protocol and the size of the trial. Yeah, we just began that trial last week with the first patient. We're going to be doing 18 to 24 patients. It's going to be a dose escalating trial. We're looking, obviously, for in phase one safety and also an indication that we are generating antibodies and T-cells that are targeting that antigen. And then we'll go into phase two. The one question that immunologists always ask is whether the immune system can recognize an endogenous protein. Alpha-lactalbumin is endogenous. It doesn't come from an external bacteria or something like that. And it's a similar question that was asked in the early days of immunotherapy where it was not clear whether the immune system would be able to target and find cancer cells. Now we know that it can. And in our case, we've shown proof of concept, at least in animals, that the immune system can identify that endogenous protein. And now we're on the verge of showing that in human beings. Now, I know from other trials in this sort of approach, it can take a long time to get a readout because you're waiting for something to happen. When can we expect a readout here? So the phase one readout, we anticipate early Q1 of this coming year. And going forward, there will be a phase two, and then a phase three could take several years of trials before we have an efficacy signal. The plan for the company, though, from a business standpoint, is to monetize this asset through a partnership long before we have completed the phase three trial, which is a long trial and an expensive trial. A partnership that's in negotiations, or this is? The partnership that is that would involve a big pharma company. We're not in negotiations yet. We want to see the initial human data first, which you know we anticipate in early next year. Now let's move on to the ovarian cancer asset. This utilizes the same vaccination approach, but this antigen is called the extracellular domain of the anti-mullerian hormone receptor 2, and no, the acronym is no easier to say. This antigen also, after a time, this one wanes after menopause. This target is unfamiliar to me. How did you find it? Well, this target was discovered by our collaborators at the Cleveland Clinic, just like they discovered the alpha-lactalbumin target for the breast cancer. The basic premise here is that this target exists but disappears at a certain time in life and then comes back when a cancer cell arises. And so we call them retired proteins and they're linked to cancer. And so once they've retired, then you can immunize the patient against that protein. And then when a cancer arises and is making that protein again, the immune system will destroy that cell. That's the premise. And so far, we have a situation with breast cancer that we're testing in humans. The ovarian cancer is a little bit earlier stage in development. We're doing preclinical studies right now, IND-enabling studies right now, and we're working with the National Cancer Institute in doing that. 
And then we hope to take that ovarian cancer into the clinic as well at some point. When do you expect any data on that? There's a lot of data that's already been published, preclinical animal data. Human data, we'll have to wait until obviously we're in the clinic. So it's hard to predict exactly how long, but maybe a year and a half before we're in the clinic. Now, as with the breast cancer program, this is also, as you mentioned, a collaboration with Cleveland Clinic. I'm curious, in a situation like that, who gets the final word on how to run the trial? Well, it's a combination of both us and the Cleveland Clinic. We work collaboratively. The trial is obviously being run at the Cleveland Clinic. The principal investigator is a staff member at the Cleveland Clinic, and so he's in control of the trial in general. Okay. I'm going to switch gears as far as the technology goes, but I want to stay with the same disease state. That would be in a CAR-T for the treatment of ovarian cancer. Except your asset is not called a CAR-T, it's called a CER-T, C-E-R, and that stands for chimeric endocrine receptor, and this is a directed T-cell. So my first question here is, how did this get in your pipeline? Your other assets are not cell therapy, and they don't involve genetic engineering. Yeah, one of the benefits of the business model that we are executing enables us to work in a number of different orthogonal areas. So we can have a project in cell therapy like CAR-T, and then we can have a different project in vaccines, and we can have a different project in infectious diseases. If tomorrow we find something compelling in cardiovascular disease, we can do that. And the reason we can do that is because of the business model. We don't build expensive labs and hire extensive staff with expertise in a particular area. What we do is we access all of that infrastructure and expertise through our collaborations. So our collaboration with the Cleveland Clinic enables us to work on two vaccine programs, two revolutionary vaccine programs. Our collaboration with the Moffitt Cancer Center enables us to work on that cell therapy, the CAR-T therapy. And as we go forward, there will be other collaborations that would enable us to work in a number of different areas. So we're able to put together a portfolio of uh, very diverse assets. I want to just add a little tagline to Moffitt for listeners that may not be unaware. Under the leadership of Frederick Locke, they have built a brand new facility just for cancer immunotherapy. Now, let's go back to the construct of mechanistically, how does it work? Yeah. So one of the reasons we call it a SIR-T, you know, chimeric endocrine receptor technology is because the target is something called the follicle-stimulating hormone receptor. It's an endocrine receptor. Unlike CD19, which is the target for the blood disorders, this is a target on a solid tumor. And follicle-stimulating hormone receptor is very unique to the ovaries in women and testes in men, nowhere else. So it's a very, very unique target. And secondly, because it's a receptor, there's a cognate ligand, the follicle-stimulating hormone, that over millions and millions of years of evolution has become a good binding pair. So our CAR-T does not require an antibody on it, antibody fragment. We simply use the wild-type follicle-stimulating hormone as the homing missile. And then here's the third characteristic that makes this really, really compelling. It turns out that follicle-stimulating hormone receptor is expressed on the endothelial cells, the inner lining 
of vasculature within tumors. So for example, you take ovarian cancer as an example. When you have blood vessels that are nourishing the ovarian cancer tumor, the lesions, those blood vessels express follicle-stimulating hormone receptor. But as soon as the blood vessel, the vasculature moves out of the lesion, the receptor disappears. So if the blood vessel is in a healthy part of the tissue, there's no receptor. If it's in the malignant part of the tissue, then the receptor is there. So what's going to happen, we believe, with our technology is that we're going to be attacking the ovarian cells directly. The CAR T cells will attack them directly. And the CAR T cells will also be disrupting the vasculature, the blood vessels nourishing that tumor. And so it's sort of like the analogy is you've got a hand grenade inside the tumor that's going to explode, and then you've got guns outside the tumor shooting the bullets. So we think that this potentially could be the very first CAR-T technology that will be efficacious on solid tumors. As you know, CAR-T has done amazing for certain B-cell diseases, lymphomas and leukemias, but has not worked at all in any solid tumor situation. And we think we and our collaborators at Moffitt think that we could be the first based on this technology. And you just have some recent news about this. It's not all theory. You started a trial in October. Actually, this trial is going to start at the end of the year. We okay. just, October, we just got the approval from the FDA to begin the trial. There was also some news in October, and I found this interesting. You're working towards getting a patent in China for this. Why pursue a Chinese patent? Was this merely protective, or is the Chinese market part of your business strategy? Both. We believe that that market is a large market in oncology for all oncology indications. And so we felt that it was necessary for us to pursue that. We're pursuing intellectual property across a number of jurisdictions, across all of our technologies. Okay. And then next, COVID. We can't escape that, but Anixa has something on the bench they're working on. What have you got? Yeah. COVID is a little bit different type of project than our other oncology projects. But, you know, my background is as CEO of Combi Matrix, the previous company we mentioned, we had done a lot of work with the U.S. Department of Defense on infectious diseases, detection, biological weapons, including SARS coronavirus 1 in the 2004 when it was raging in, throughout Asia. And so when coronavirus 2 shows up, we felt that we had some expertise to be able to work on that. And we're doing it a little bit differently than most companies. When coronavirus 2 emerged, most companies looked at what they had on their shelves to try and evaluate whether those drugs would work against the virus. So remdesivir, as an example, was one. Remdesivir was something that was developed for, I believe, Ebola. It didn't work for Ebola, but they tried it against coronavirus, SARS coronavirus 2, and they got a little bit of efficacy, but not great. However, what we said was, let's not try and repurpose something. Let's start from scratch. Let's understand the machinery of this virus and try and develop compounds that would inhibit that. So we started with the crystal structure of some of the proteins in the virus. 
as well as the sequence information of the virus. And then using that information, we began a program. And we've gotten down to several compounds now that we think are quite potent. And we're doing some medicinal chemistry around those compounds to make them even more drug-like. The goal here is to have a compound that is inexpensive, orally available, and easy to ship so that you could be used through the world. We want it to be, the analogy is the Tamiflu for, for coronavirus. Well, the entire world wishes you tremendous luck with that, sir. Yeah, thank you. Zooming back out from the business part of the business. So let's talk about your IP positions for all of this. Yeah, so we've pursued aggressively IP on all of our programs. Obviously, some of the programs that have come from the academic institutions like the Cleveland Clinic, the academic institutions had already been prosecuting IP before we got involved, and we continue to do that. So as I noted, we've got a strong IP on every one of those programs in the United States and Europe, and we're prosecuting in other jurisdictions as well. All right. And finally, let's talk about money. What sort of runway are you looking at? And what sort of conversations would you like to have with investors in the near future? Perhaps JP Morgan? Well, we're very well financed. It's rare for a biotech company to say that, but we have over six years of cash. And the reason is because of our business model. We're working on all four of these programs, but we're only burning $5 million a year. And the reason we can do that is because we haven't built out that infrastructure that's very expensive. No big labs, no big staffs. All of that is accessed through our academic collaborators. And so we've got over $36 million of cash on our balance sheet, but we're burning $5 million a year. It'll go up a little bit, you know, as we move into the more clinical work, but you may go up to $6 million a year. It's not going to go to 30 or 40. And, and that's a unique business model, Neil. As you know, most biotech companies are burning tens to hundreds of millions of dollars, especially companies that are developing cell therapy. That's a very expensive endeavor. I have to be honest with you. When I saw on the deck your burn rate, I thought I was a typo. Yeah, I know. It's incredible that we can do this. And that was intent on my part. My last company at Matrix, we had a huge staff and we were burning a lot of money and had to go and raise a fair amount of money to keep things moving along. Matrix, by the way, is no longer around. It was acquired by Invite. But in this particular endeavor, I didn't want to do it that way. And what we wanted to do is to maintain the value for the shareholders and not keep diluting them. Now, we do need money. We do need some money. And so we've done a deal or two here and there. But in general, we've got plenty of capital for quite some time. And as far as investors are concerned, we are now going into the clinic. And I would love to have the institutional investors you know, take a look at us. We've been under the radar because of the history of the company, because it was an electronics company and it was repositioned as a biotech four years ago. The biotech institutional investors really don't know about us. And we want to go out there and start telling our story, especially as we start hitting the clinic. And frankly, imagine if one of these programs work. Imagine if the breast cancer vaccine actually works in humans as it did in animals, What how valuable that product could be for humanity. Let's wrap up. I have one final question. 
and that is, what is Band of Angels? The Band of Angels is a group of accredited investors out here in the Silicon Valley. It's one of the oldest angel groups that together looks at interesting startups and makes seed investments in those startups. And so I'm a member of the band and have made a few seed investments here and there. All right. Well, that's a wrap. Today, it has been my pleasure to be speaking with Dr. Amit Kumar. He is the chairman, president, and CEO of Anixa Biosciences. Doctor, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Neil. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this week's Benchtop Bios. I hope that this episode will serve as yet another data point to guide you in your investment strategies. If you wish to hear more of Lifesize Benchtop Bios, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or Google. Also, if there's a company or a particular executive you'd like to get to know, I do take requests. Please send those to ncanadad at lifesciadvisors.com. Until next week then, goodbye, or for that matter, good sell whatever boosts your portfolio.